couple of Sundays ago, Andy O'Brockta commented, or rather, I guess it was at the men's breakfast, that I always start with a story, and I'm going to do so today, but the story involves Andy. <laughs> Last Thursday, I was meeting with some of the leaders of Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, and in that meeting, there's a man named uh, Jeffrey Hendrickson. He is in charge of the children's ministry at Cornerstone. He's a really a wonderfully developing leader. And he said, I want you to know I have a great debt to Tulsa Christian Fellowship because of the Boy Scout troop. He said, I did not have a father. But Andy and Mike Friedemann became male examples to me. Today he's an Eagle Scout, or he became an Eagle Scout. Wonderful moving in ministry. And Andy, thank you for the work you did. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You know, sometimes when the Lord begins to speak to me about a word, I resist it. And I resisted the one that God has given me for today. Early in the week, this began to come forth, and I thought, surely not that, surely not that, surely not that. And yesterday morning, I began to read through the Gospels, trying to find something different, and uh, I just kept hitting a wall. And so around 10 o'clock yesterday morning, I thought, okay, that's it, Lord, what do you want me to say? And so this morning, uh, the Lord said, ignore the clock. God help us. <laughs> Not really, but we are going to ignore the clock. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, the Sunday that is normally celebrating the triumphal entry. But next Sunday is the fifth Sunday, and so instead of having a Palm Sunday, we're having a very special service in which we're going to feature and focus on those various things that we as a congregation are doing in the neighborhood. It'll be a blessed day, and of course, the covered dish dinner afterwards is always blessed, isn't it? We have some great cooks in this church. I'm not one. But it's, it's, next Sunday's going to be a special day. But in lieu of having a Palm Sunday, this morning we want to talk about the Christian calendar we want to go in a survey form through the very life of Jesus and notice those episodes in His life that are crucial to our salvation. And the blessing we have in the Christian calendar of having these various special days of the year in which we honor and remember those particular events. It's important that we have such memorials. We live very busy, busy lives. We're so busy, it's always been true that it's, our minds can become so filled with the activities of life that passing out of our awareness are those things that are really essential and important, the things having to do with eternity. And I think now with this digital age, it's even more so. A couple of weeks ago, I was at the gym working out, and I was on the back machine, you know, where you have a weight here, and you do that to build these muscles. And next to me is the ab machine, which has the weight here and you bend forward, which really is a poor machine for the abs because it's really using the back. But there was a person on that machine, and I'll not say whether it was male or female, but this individual was having a chat on the cell phone while doing abs. Oh, my Lord, put that thing in the locker, you know. 
What a world we live in. Our minds are just so crowded with things, and we need these special memorials that we might focus upon the important things related to eternity. That's why we have the Lord's Supper. In the Old Testament, God ordained many, many memorials. In the New Testament, we have the Lord's Supper, that every week we come together reminded of the cross of Jesus, wherewith we have our full hope of eternity because of what God has given us through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ upon the cross. Praise be His name. Amen. And so that was ordained by Christ and ordained by the apostles. Some, sad to say, in many churches today, Sunday morning has become an event and music has taken over the church. Nothing wrong with music. It's a blessing. Didn't we have a great worship time today? But any time the cross of Jesus becomes secondary and is out of our thinking, something has gone wrong. This memorial is important. Not only are memorials important to keep us in mind of the important things, but they also are a means of imparting truth to the next generation. You remember when the Israelites were coming to the Promised Land and they came to the Jordan River once before, 40 years before, God had parted the waters of the Red Sea and the Israelites crossed over on dry land. And now 40 years later they were facing water again. It was the River Jordan. And Joshua said to the people, you've never been this way before. You don't know where you're going. So follow the priests who are carrying the ark. And they carried the Ark of the Covenant to the brink of the Jordan. By that time of the year, the, the Jordan was overflowing its banks. It spread around the countryside. And as soon as their feet touched the water, the water began to recede. And they stood in the middle of the river. And Joshua 2 tells us that the water stood up as a heap on one side. And they stood on dry land. And after they had crossed... The Lord said to Joshua, go back into the river. Go by the feet of the priests and have 12 men pick up 12 boulders and carry those boulders and build them up as a pyre on the shore. And in coming years when your children say, what meaneth these stones? Then you will tell them about this miracle of God, the God who is glory and all over all. And then Joshua on his own had... Twelve men pick up stones from the bank and go build a pyre in the middle of the river. So I guess in future years, if some Jew is scuba diving, he might see that and uh, be reminded of what God had done. But memorials, you see, not only are for us, they're one means in which we impart truth to the coming generation. Memorials are important. And as we follow the life of Jesus in the Gospels, there are events that throughout history the church has said we will memorialize this event because it is important to our salvation. Let's talk about those this morning. First is the birth of Jesus. Now, we have a lot of questions that have been asked over the years about Christmas and about Easter. And this morning, I want to take the time to answer some of these questions that have been raised. Why do we call it Christmas? Well, we call it Christmas because traditionally in the Roman Catholic Church there was no Mass that could be held after sunset except one. And that was the Mass that celebrated the birth of Jesus and it traditionally was held 
at midnight on Christmas Eve. So Christmas, Christ Mass, you see. And you say, well, wait a minute, that's a Roman Catholic label, so we shouldn't use it. Why not, you know? Why not? Why do you call today Sunday? You call today Sunday because the ancient Romans dedicated this day to the sun god. And so it was named Sunday. And so if you use the name Sunday, that's no different than calling the birth of Jesus Christmas. Friday, that was to a Germanic god, free, his day. And so if you say Friday, you say, well, I don't want to do that. I'm going to start saying, let's see, what is Sunday? Is it the fifth day of the week? No, Friday. And so what difference does it make if the origin communicates what we want to say? An example we mentioned in the Sunday night seminar a few weeks ago, the word hallelujah is not praising God. If you have that aspirant sound on the beginning, ha, that's a command. And so if you say hallelujah, Lord, you're saying, Lord, praise yourself. Now you remove that aspirin and just say, Alleluia, that's praise. But God doesn't care about how you say the word. He looks at your heart. The Lord searches the heart. And so whether you say, Hallelujah, Umbergado, whatever, God looks at your heart. So the sound we make, what difference does it make if it is communicating what we want to communicate? And so we have no problem calling the birth of Jesus Christmas. Why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? Well, there are really some confusing things about that. Various people put forth different theories. Some people say it certainly didn't happen in December 25th. That's winter time. Because we know when Jesus was born, there were shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. And no shepherd would have his flocks out in the field in the wintertime. So it probably was at Passover. Because there were a bunch of Jews already in town. A perfect time for the Romans to take census. And because everybody was in town, Joseph and Mary couldn't find a hotel room. And so they had to stay in a barn. Oh, no, not spring. It was the fall the time when the Jews came together to celebrate the Feast of Booths and everybody was in town. And you know, you know, there's not one early Christian writer that ever describes observing the birth of Jesus in either the fall or the spring. All of them describe observing the birth of Jesus in the winter. Other ideas are, well, that was the time the Romans were having their winter festival and so the Christians just accommodated that and went along with the festival. Again, let me explain that. The Romans' chief god was Saturn. And so because the, the winter solstice was December 21st and 22nd, and it was kind of a downtime, they had a Saturnalia which extended from December 17th to December 21st. And in the Saturnalia, it was just wild party time. You got drunk, there was sexual license, gave gifts to each other. And then on the 25th of December, believing that Mithras, the sun god, had been asleep, and Saturn woke him up. And so that was the day of the rebirth, of the reawakening of Mithras, the sun god. 
And so Christians just adopted that and decided since it was the birth of the Son God, we then will celebrate the birth of Jesus, the Son of Righteousness on that day. And we'll have all those practices, you know, giving gifts and all that stuff. Interesting, as I've researched the Saturnalia, there's great evidence that no Saturnalia was ever held until after Christmas Christians were already celebrating December 25th. Others say, well, they were already doing it, but they did it to say, look, you're worshiping that terrible idol, that pagan god. We are worshiping the true God, and we're doing it in protest and in resistance to what you're doing. And that's the view of some. A more scholarly, acceptable point of view is this, because it's based upon fact. The early Christians, as well as the Jews in the day of Jesus and shortly thereafter, believed, well, first of all, let me go back and talk about calendars, because it, it's kind of confusing. <laughs> the Roman calendar, the original Roman calendar, had ten months. And they were named after the numerical order. Uno, two, three, quarter, quinque, six, septem, octo, novem, and decem. The one, two, three, four, five, seven, nine, ten. Now the first four months were named after gods. But the fifth one on, Quintilius, Sextus, September, October, November, December, were by the numbers. Problem was, these ten months always got out of sequence with the solar seasons. And so ever so often they had to add an extra month or repeat a month. Now Julius Caesar in 45 A.D. said enough of that foolishness. And so he totally redid the calendar. He added two months, July, named after himself, Julius, and August because Caesar Augustus, you see. And uh, normally under the old Roman calendar, the first of the year was the first was the month of March, which was in spring, the same time we have March, March being the name of a Roman god. So Julius Caesar changed the calendar, and he added two days, and he realized that no longer did the numbers fit, but he kept some of them. Now think about that. September is seven, but in our calendar it's nine, isn't it? October is eight, but in our, you know, octet singers, it's ten, so on. So he kept those, which make no sense, but he added earlier months and gave them various names to them, and he changed the new year from springtime to the beginning of the sun moving back toward the earth, although he didn't understand all of that. And he named that first year Janus after the two-faced God. The God could look to the front and the back so you see the last year and the new year. So that's how that, that's that, so that became called the Julian calendar. However, it too had problems because he had not taken into account all of the solar seasons. So in 1582, Pope Gregory XIII, he got hold of the calendar and he said, we'll do away with the Julian calendar and we'll make a new one. He got rid of 10 days, came up with the idea of leap year, and the Gregorian calendar is the one we use in our part of the world today. Much of the world resisted that. And many nations said, no, we're going to stay with the Julian calendar. 
The last nation to officially accept the Gregorian calendar was Turkey in 1917. The British and the United the Colonies in 1752 officially accepted the Gregorian calendar, but many of the colonies said, no, we're not going to do that. And so he had some colonies with the Gregorian calendar, some with the Julian calendar, which was downright confusing, especially when you were dating important documents. Which calendar are you using? Then we have the Jewish calendar. <laughs> the Jewish calendar has 12 months, but because it is a lunar calendar and doesn't exactly fit the solar seasons, every few years an extra month has to be added. The last month on the Jewish calendar is the month Adar, and so you have Adar 1 and in some years Adar 2. Just repeat the month over. So we have all of these confusing things about calendars. And so when the early Christians decided that a thing happened on a particular day, you have to say which calendar were they using and how does that fit our Gregorian calendar. According to the way we would make that transference of the Gregorian calendar, the early Christians and most of the Jews of that day believed that the world was created on what we call March 25th. They also believed that the Israelites were delivered from Egypt on March 25th. And some even said the law was given on March 25th, but you figure the months, it doesn't quite work out, but that's still what they thought. And since March the 25th is the beginning of things, March the 25th was the day that Jesus was conceived. God being perfect, Jesus therefore had to be born exactly nine months after he was conceived. March 25th, December 25th as you look at the Gregorian calendar. That really has the most scholarly credibility as to why we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. The first record of, of celebrating Christmas December 25th is uh, in 326 A.D. And shortly thereafter, Julius, who was the bishop of Rome, officially declared that as the day. Later, Roman Catholics made him Pope Julius I. So, boy, his word carries a lot of weight, you know. <laughs> so, December 25th. And as you look back in history of the early church, it has always been that day except, except for those that kept the Julian calendar. And in that case, it's a few days later. The Eastern Orthodox Church, if you look on your calendars at home, it'll have... Christmas, and then it'll have Orthodox Christmas because they still follow the Julian calendar. By the way, yesterday was New Year's Day for those countries that are a part of the former Persian Empire. Did you know that? Yesterday was New Year's for those countries. So we have all these things that swirl about us as far as calendars are concerned. You know what? I say, so what? <laughs> so what? <laughs> What a marvelous thing to do to have a day of the year in which we focus upon that time when God the Father said it's time to move and the angel Gabriel appeared to a teenage Jewish maiden and said, Greetings, or hail, or if you're speaking Latin, Ave. If you're speaking Greek, 
Tyre. Of course, you see, he was speaking Aramaic, and I don't speak Aramaic, so I'm not sure what he said. <laughs> Here's something to think about. You know, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, only the, only the four Gospels. But in the four Gospels, any time you are reading any speech or dialogue or conversation, originally that was spoken in Aramaic because that was a language spoken in that day. So we're reading an English translation of Greek that's a translation of Aramaic. And I'm sure because the Holy Spirit was over it all, they got it right. But think about that. Well, I don't know what that angel said, but whatever it was, it was hail, <laughs> favored one. You know, Mary is such an example to us. Be it unto me, unto your slave, she said, according to your word. The angel said, The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and that which is to be born of you will be called the Son of God. Can you wrap your mind around that? Paul wrote to the Philippians, He who thought it not robbery to count himself equal with God, who was of the same essence of God, emptied himself and took upon himself the essence of of a man, a human, even a slave to the point of death. How can we wrap our minds around that? I can't. If you can, you must be divine. <laughs> Think of that. So the first thing on our Christian calendar, the first memorial that we have, as that memorial to the indescribable, incomprehensible incarnation as Jesus Christ came into the earth, the divine one, and took upon himself the form of a human even to the point of death. The next event on the Christian calendar is what's called epiphany. That comes from the Greek word epiphano that means manifestation. And that describes this event. John the Immerser was in the Jordan River immersing people. And he was the one whom from his youth had known because the Holy Spirit had been with him and even in his mother's womb. And his purpose for being born was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so his proclamation was, Make ready the way of the Lord. He called a nation, he called individuals, to repentance, get your hearts right, the Messiah is coming. One day, he saw his cousin Jesus. John and Jesus were cousins, John six, weeks, six months older. He saw his cousin Jesus come and step into the water. And John said, I cannot immerse you, you should immerse me. And Jesus said, it's the will of the Father. King James says, suffereth it to be so, <laughs> to fulfill all righteousness. And John immersed him, and as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens opened, and he saw the Holy Spirit as a dove coming and descending and resting, not just lighting, but resting on him. And out of heaven came the voice, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am, in whom I am well pleased. This is the first time in the Bible that we see the Trinity clearly displayed. The Son of God in the water, 
the Holy Spirit resting upon him in the form of a dove and the voice of God speaking from heaven. We commemorate that day as Epiphany. We at TCF don't, but many churches do because it is that time when the 30-year silence ended and Jesus Christ left the home in Nazareth to begin his ministry. If that had never done, been done, where would we be today? Jesus immediately went into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit drove him, Scripture says, into the wilderness 40 days, tempted in all points like as we are, refusing to, to use his divine power to make things easier. Remember one time when he was having not eaten for 40 days, the devil said, here are stones. If you're the Son of God, turn these into bread. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He refused to use his divine power to relieve what he was going through. And then he went back to the bank of the river where John was, probably uh, the city of Jericho. And there some of John's disciples were. And John saw him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Six of John's disciples followed Jesus. Jesus had been given early an invitation to attend a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And so as Jesus journeyed to Cana, six went with him. And you remember the story, the wedding feast. They'd run out of wine. Mary, Jesus' mother, trying to get him to show who he was. You know, Lord, the, the son, they run out of wine. Woman, what do you have to do with this? <laughs> Fill the stone jars with water, and he turned them to wine. This, according to John chapter 2, is the first miracle that Jesus did. And that event, the Cana feast, is celebrated in many churches. When Jesus began his miraculous ministry. Aren't we thankful for his miraculous ministry? Now we could talk about the time when he chose the 12 apostles in a mountain in Galilee. We'll pass by that and move to the next big event, which is Palm Sunday. Jesus and his disciples had been in Perea, and they had journeyed now and spent the night in Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, some weeks before he had raised Lazarus from the dead. great crowd of people spent the night in Bethany, but some went on into Jerusalem just a few miles away and said, Jesus is coming. And there was great excitement, especially those who were close to him, for they saw him as the Messiah, the one who was going to reestablish the throne of David in Jerusalem and drive out the Romans. And they were excited. This was the day. And they began the parade to Jerusalem, Jesus riding on the colt of a donkey and the mother donkey led along. They came around the side of the Mount of Olives, veered to the left and paused and Jesus looked down, and here's what he saw. He saw a great host of people coming out of the city to meet him. They were carrying palm branches and throwing them on the ground, taking their clothes off, throwing them on the ground, creating a royal carpet for the king to come to Jerusalem. And Jesus stopped and looked and began to weep. He saw the glistening temple of Herod, more beautiful than that which Solomon had erected. 
He saw the throngs of pilgrims. But in that moment, in his spirit, he looked 40 years to the future and began to weep. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest those that have been sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered you unto me as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings. But she would not. Henceforth, your house is left unto you. And you can imagine the tears in his eyes as he said, desolate. Desolate. And a few days later, he said to his disciples who were reveling in these beautiful temples, a day will come when there will not one stone be left upon another because of Israel's apostasy. As I thought about this, I wonder what it would be like if Jesus coming from the west came to Lookout Mountain and veered to the left and stopped and looked down upon Tulsa, saw all of our buildings, Many call us the buckle of the Bible belt. I wonder if in the spirit he could see this building, which originally was a big red furniture warehouse and an international market, then the place where Faith Fellowship met since November 1980, been home in Tulsa Christian Church. What would he say about us? I hope he would see here a body of believers who were among those in that crowd who truly knew who he was and were faithful to God. But what, you remember the, the song, America the Beautiful was written because the person who composed it was on Pike's Peak and began to look out over that array and composed the song, America the Beautiful. I wonder if Jesus could come to some high apex point and look over America, what would he say? Oh, America, America, you as a nation came into existence because those who followed me left the shores of Europe to come here where they could worship unhindered. As a nation, every colony in America had in its constitution about me. And every founding document of your republic acknowledged my existence. But what have you become? What have you become? The Apostle Paul, who first was Saul of Tarsus, who was arresting Christians and throwing them into prison, and he said every time the vote was taken, I voted for the death penalty. One day on the road to Damascus, the Lord appeared to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. He had never met Jesus. But what Jesus was saying was this, every Christian that you persecute, every Christian you jail, every Christian you kill, it is as if you had done it to me because these are my spiritual body. Recently there's been in the news, or at least the news that some of us read about a Navy chaplain Decorated, 15 years of decorated service, highly praised. 
but about three weeks ago in a counseling session, someone secretly recorded, it was a setup, that he said he said that homosexual practice, not temptation, but homosexual practice was sin. He was immediately jerked from his duty, confined to the chapel, being disciplined because he spoke the word of God in a counseling session. It was a setup. We've heard about the grandmother. Not There have been two. This was recently. The grandmother in the state of Washington uh, in her 70s, as I recall, who has always fixed cakes and cupcakes and stuff for everybody, even homosexuals and lesbians. But when there was a same-sex couple who wanted to get married and wanted her to bake a cake for them, she said, I can't do it. It violates my spiritual convictions. And so she's been convicted, and they were going to take her bakery and her house and everything. And there was such a protest by some of the Christian community that the attorney general of the state said, well, if you'll pay a $2,000 fine and then a dollar for court costs, we'll forget everything. If you promise, from now on, you'll bake cakes for same-sex couples. And she said, there was a person years ago who sold the most precious thing in the world for 30 pieces of silver. I'll not do that. Isn't that admirable? What would God say about America? America that in many ways began as his nation, but today is persecuting in many ways the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the next event, Thursday, which we call Monday Thursday. Where would you come up with that name? Well, I'll tell you where it came from. King of England, Charles, had the practice of every year at Christmas time of giving Maundy purses and Maundy baskets to the poor. Maundy comes from the Greek word mendicatory, which means poor or beg. So from that Latin word, uh, Maundy Thursday came forth. And that, that's the term that Thursday before Easter is called in church after church, and nation after nation. But what about that night? It was after sunset. And Jesus and 11 of his disciples were partaking of the Passover. Judas had already left to go out and do his nefarious deed. And at the end of the Passover, Jesus took the unleavened bread that was necessary at the Passover. Eleven was barred, and that's why we have unleavened bread at the Lord's table. And he broke it. Now the King James says, this is my body which is broken for you. That really gives a misunderstanding. What the Greek literally says is, this which is broken for you is my body, speaking of the loaf. Take and eat of it, all of you. And he passed it around, and they all took. The last cup of the Passover service is called the cup of the blessing. Paul later said, is it not the cup of the blessing which we partake? So he took the very last cup and held it up and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink of it. And they partook. And then he said, and oft as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And after his ascension, the early church made that a 
the central event in every Sunday meeting. Isn't that something to think about? I don't think we can begin to understand fully the Lord's table. I've been partaking of communion now for 74 years. <laughs> Baptized when I was 10 years old, and I'm 84 now. And I still don't understand it, but I can testify to the blessing. The blessing of the certainty that I trust the cross of Jesus and I have no fear of hell, heaven's mine, because I'm trusting the cross, not my worthiness. And also this mysterious thing that Jesus said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. In some way, although I do not believe in transubstantiation as Catholics do, in some way there is spiritual life imparted by partaking of the loaf and the cup. And so churches celebrate Monday, Thursday, as we do here every year, and then Friday. Call Good Friday because of the results, but the horror of that day, how could it be called good? The next time you're experiencing some severe pain, let that be a redemptive experience. And here's what I mean. Think about Jesus on the ground, Roman soldiers holding his feet together, and a stout Roman soldier taking a hammer and a spike and nailing his two feet to the cross. Oh, the pain. And then stretching him out upon the beam. And as they held his arms in place, driving a spike through the median nerve. The me if you bump your arm, you say, that's the crazy bone, that's what the median nerve feels like and the spike driven through there and the pain relentless because he loves you and because he loves me and we commemorate that on Good Friday but that pain in no way compares to the spiritual pain he experienced think about this he had to become sin the very thing that he hated he had to become that in order that sin might die upon that cross for you and me. And so we have Good Friday. In many churches, Saturday is also honored because that's the day the body is in the grave. It's a time of silence, a time of solemnity, a time of meditation. And some churches honor it that way. And then Easter Sunday. Let me talk about Easter. We have people say we should never call that Easter because Easter is the name of a god or goddess. A while back, a good friend in Manassas, Virginia, wrote a book about the problem of Mariolatry. She, this person is a former Roman Catholic and how the spirits of gods and goddesses had infected the church and one of them was a, I'll say Germanic god named Ostra. And Ostra, which we call Easter, had already invaded the church by the time of the Council of Nicaea because they debated, they debated the Easter question. Now this person got that idea because they were reading J.B. Lightfoot's translation of... Um, of the minutes 
of the Council of Nicaea. Eusebius recorded these. So this person asked me to edit the book. And in my editing, of course, I tested everything. <laughs> and so I went back. I don't know. Let me see really what do those minutes said. So I went back to the Greek and began translating what Eusebius had written. The word Easter isn't there. It is the word Pascha. Pascha is the Greek word for Passover. That's where we get the word Paschal Lamb. And what they were debating was, should we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus according to the Jewish calendar? In other words, wherever the 14th of Nisan fell, then that might mean the resurrection, and according to the Jewish calendar, could have happened on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, whenever. And the Eastern churches, the Greek-speaking churches, were saying that's what we should do. We should celebrate the resurrection according to the Jewish calendar related to the 19th of, uh, 14th of Nisan. The Western churches, the Latin-speaking churches, said no, Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week, so regardless of where it falls in relative to the 19th, uh, 14th of Nisan, we need to celebrate it on Sunday, the first day of the week. And so that's what was debated at the Council of Nicaea. Do we celebrate the resurrection, the Pascha, the Passover, on Sunday, or <laughs> according to when it falls uh, connected to the 14th of Nisan? So those who say we should not call it Easter, that's wrong. The word Easter really originated in England. It's an old English term. And if you research, you find it has all kinds of connections that are used in various ways. It originated in England. The only evidence there ever was of a god called Astra was in the Venerable Bede, who mentioned that one time in kind of a speculative way. And then the brothers Grimm, who in the 1800s wrote Grimm's fairy tales, they wanted to establish the history and Germanic affluence, and so they are the ones that began to promote the idea that there was a god named Astra. So let's call it Easter and just be happy. <laughs> but many pagan traditions have been associated with that day. I grew up in a home in which we were told the bunny rabbit brought Easter eggs and Santa Claus brought presents. When I was about five years old, I was in my father and mother's bedroom, I don't know why, and I noticed in the closet there was a little scooter. A few days later was Easter, and that scooter was under the Christmas tree, and Santa Claus and the reindeers had delivered it the night before. And I knew my parents had lied. You know what? This is serious, because from that day on, I didn't trust my parents, because they lied to me. And I came to realize a lie about the Easter Bunny. And <laughs> if you want to have an Easter egg hunt, okay, but don't relate it to Easter. It's a spring event, you know. <laughs> Be honest. Don't lie to your kids. Liars go to hell. <laughs> Serious business. But oh, what a glorious thing to think about. Our king has showed us victory over the grave, which will be ours when he comes again. Well, we could go on and talk about Ascension Day, which many churches honor, Day of Pentecost, 
And these are certainly relevant to our salvation. But aren't we thankful that over the years believers have said these things are so important we need to have memorials to focus upon them and force us, force us to push all the other stuff out of our minds and give thanksgiving to God for what he has done. Lord, we're thankful for the life of Jesus. And we're thankful, Father, that nothing was held back that was required to give us heaven and give us a relationship with you. Thank you, Father, for the gifts of these events on our Christian calendar. Through Jesus, amen.